really, you really, okay, okay. I see you. <laughs> I'm bringing different energy for this one, Brandy. I see that. I see your energy. So here, here's the spoiler, Carlos, just so you know. I've lost the last two episodes, you know, and I've had multiple people text me like, hey, you know, doing that thing of like, you know, Brandy, Brandy's a bit of a lawyer. You just it's it's a lot to, to manage. <laughs> you're up against you're you're going up against. Who the texted you? I was I'm a- telling you, multiple people have texted me more than one. My mom would appreciate that since I never really <laughs> use my law degree. And it's always the shame of the family. <laughs> well, you, you're putting it to good use here on this podcast. I'm Brandy. And I'm Steven. And welcome to Bring Receipts. On this podcast, Steven and I argue our unpopular opinions about pop culture. In today's episode, Brandy finally learns the answer to who is Fernando Valenzuela? We're debating the most influential athlete of the 1980s. I believe it's iconic LA Dodgers pitcher, the Mexican Sandy Koufax, El Toro, the Echo Aquila, Sonora Mexico, Fernando Valenzuela. I didn't even know who that was, so I disagree. Joining us to decide who is right is special guest judge Carlos Gauna Schmieder. So get into your windup. Look up at the sky. Here comes the pitch. It's time to bring receipts. It really is too good to be true. The full house came to see him, and he has not disappointed us all. The 1-1 screwball is swung on and missed. One and two. And now you can hear it. The English cheers and the Spanish surdo. Surdo. And the applause. And there hasn't been anything like it anywhere, anytime. What a memorable night, huh? Just one game, April the 27th. But what a game to remember. Valenzuela's 2-2 pitch. Fastball got him swinging. It is incredible. It is fantastic. It is Fernando Valenzuela. He has done something I can't believe anybody has ever done or ever will do. 20 years old. He makes five big league starts. He has four shutouts, five complete games. He's allowed one run. Unbelievable. So, as you know, Stephen, I am on a winning streak. I am shooting hot fire, flames, pyrotechnics in this bitch. But you have me at a slight disadvantage on this one. So... You tell me. Um, tell me why you picked this topic. Tell me about Fernando. I want to hear everything. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I was robbed in the last episode. I really feel like I made the winning argument, but whatever. That's I, I demand a recount. Um, so I decided to go a different route for this episode. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take some home field advantage here. Like that's the only way I'm gonna come back on this series and and even it out. I'm one and two at this point. Um, so I figured, let me go back to my winning traditions because I, you know, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in a tradition of of winning sports culture. Yeah, I've got the fandom of the Lakers. I grew up loving the Lakers, and I grew up loving the Los Angeles Dodgers. Let me make an argument that is about the Dodgers, a team that I love, and yeah, that's why I chose this topic on the most influential athlete of the 1980s. And I'm going to make the argument that it's it's Fernando Valenzuela. My first Dodgers memory was getting picked up 
by my brother's father, um, who took me to a day game. Lo and behold, uh, the person pitching on the mound that day was Fernando Valenzuela. This was in 1990, and he was pitching against the mm-hmm. Montreal Expos, and the Dodgers won. And it was the most exciting, fun memory for me. Does Montreal exist anymore? I mean, not the city. city no, the, the Montreal. Baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is Montreal around anymore? Um, the Montreal Expos no longer exist as a team. They actually moved to Washington. Mm. They're now like the the Washington Nationals. It's that team that I love to hate. Oh, no. David's sworn enemy? Of course they're French. Sacre bleu. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So the other thing I want to do with this episode, Brandy, is actually tug at the heartstrings a bit because you tugged at the heartstrings in the last episode. So I'm going to do that in this episode. I'm going to say that I'm going to dedicate this episode to my brother's dad, who was probably the among the earliest father figures I had in my life because the folks don't know that about me. I didn't grow up with my father. My mom was a single mom. And... My brother's dad was the person who introduced me to sports um, and in, in particular introduced me to baseball and taught me how to play baseball and introduced me to basketball. Both the fandoms, the teams that I love are in large part an extension of kind of his attention to me, which I really appreciated at the age that I was because I had never really received that kind of attention from a male figure in my life. So shout out to my brother's dad. Aww. There you go. See, this is my winning strategy for today. <laughs> That's sweet. Well, that's see, see. I was all like, I was like, oh, and then you went, got cynical with it. <laughs> I'm trying to win a podcast, Brandy. That's what I'm here to do. Um, <laughs> I'm tired of these L's. So let let's answer the question for you real quick of who Fernando Valenzuela is, because that was your that was your very initial reaction when I first pitched this idea to you. You were like, oh, who? God. You thought I was talking about the ABBA song. It's a good song. Is a song about Pretty him? Messed up. The song might be about him. Do you have you looked into that? I feel like I have not, but I'm pretty sure Fernando the song came out before Fernando Valenzuela entered the league. I could be wrong, but I feel like that was probably clearly 70s. But they could have been yeah, they could have seen him wherever he's from. He's from Mexico, right? <laughs> yeah, you're about to find out. So, <laughs> Fernando Valenzuela Oh, is he not from Mexico? Yes, he is. But but okay, you only okay. knew that Please. after I told you, because you were you were straight Please up don't. thinking he was Dominican. Please don't get me in trouble. <laughs> Please do not get me in trouble. Okay, I'm gonna shut up. You talk about Fernando. You were guessing. You guessed. You guessed the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Curacao, Venezuela. You didn't. You didn't even have Mexico in like the top twenty places that Fernando Valenzuela could potentially be from. Honestly, given given the fact that we were talking about baseball, I thought those were very educated guesses. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Today they would be, but this is this is what I'm gonna talk about. All right, so Fernando Valenzuela, born in 1960, um, was discovered by this kind of famous uh, Dodgers scout Mike Brito, who a lot of folks who are fans of the Dodgers will remember him as being this like kind of gregarious character who used to walk around with like a sombrero and not a sombrero, like a kind of a a hat and like a cigar, like an always unlit cigar, like hanging from his pocket. Um, But he discovered Fernando Valenzuela when he was about 17. He was actually going as most of these, like, I feel like baseball stories are always like this in scouting where like they're going to see some other player and then they find this player. Um, so Mike Brito was going to to check out this shortstop in Mexico. 
and uh, ended up like in love with the pitcher who was pitching against the shortstop um, in this game. And uh, it turned out that that pitcher was Fernando Valenzuela. He was like a young 17 year old lefty pitcher and immediately wanted to sign him to the Dodgers. And there was like a short kind of bidding war between the Dodgers and the Yankees to sign Fernando Valenzuela. So he actually almost ended up with the Yankees, but the Dodgers offered just a slightly bit more money. And he had like a pretty quick ascendant rise into the major leagues. He actually broke into the majors in 1980, pitched for the Dodgers in the postseason, and then was actually their opening day starter in 1981, which is unheard of for a 19-year-old to do that. Um, and unheard of in general for a young baseball player to to pitch in an opening day. It's generally reserved for like your best pitcher is the pitcher who opens the season for you and for your team. But because of injuries, uh, famous Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda was kind of compelled to to start Fernando. And, you know, 1981 became kind of the the year of what would come to be known as Fernando mania um, as he went on a tear that particular season. Um, he won the national rookie of the year, which is awarded to, you know, the f- best first year player in, in baseball. And he also won the uh, national league Cy Young award, which is awarded to the best pitcher uh, of the season. And that was uh, a first of its kind of, recognition as no other baseball player has actually held both awards in the same season before then and ever since then. So, you know, he, Fernando Mania kind of kicked off in, in from opening day in April of 1981 um, throughout the rest of that season, but uh, really kind of hit its peak um, after his fifth start. Um, And he actually pitched against the San Francisco Giants in his fifth start, which was his first uh, game pitching at home um, after opening the season. And he just blew it out the park. Like it was the first time that the stadium had been completely sold out and was just populated with all these like Mexican-American fans, which had never really come to watch a Dodger game prior to that. And I'll I'll go into a little bit about why uh, later. And within that season, also in 1981, he hit the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was known to fill stadiums as he went on the road. Um, it was documented that, you know, you could expect 10 to 15,000 more fans to come out to his games when he was on the road, including in places like Montreal and in Chicago and, um, and on the East coast as well. So he went on to pitch in the postseason that year and beat the mighty New York Yankees who had bit, beaten the Dodgers in the world series just a few seasons back. So got us some revenge as well. So, That is Fernando Valenzuela, um, an epic baseball player. His career started in 1980, went all the way to 1997, um, where he closed out his career. I think his last major league appearance was for the Baltimore Orioles. So shout out to David, um, who's a big O's fan. Shout out to David and Dan, two very loyal listeners in Baltimore. So shout out to you all. Yes. David has to because he's my husband, so he's held hostage. <laughs> but but he's very insightful in his yeah, commentary. Shout out to Dan. Yeah, shout out to Dan. Dan's the real MVP. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's Fernando Valenzuela. I'll go more into the impact, um, his impact on the on the game of baseball, and 
and you know my arguments for why I think he was the most influential baseball player. But you know, the 1980s were also a very interesting time for sports. So I'm curious, Brandy, for you, you know, you and I have talked about how like baseball isn't really the thing that like you ever got into. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about why. And then we can talk about some of the more kind of iconic things that were also happening in the 1980s around sports. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting because my husband, David, is a huge baseball fan. He grew up as an Orioles fan, and he's the reason why I pay attention to baseball at all. And it's weird because growing up in Illinois and having family from Chicago and having two Chicago teams, the Cubs and the White Sox, one would think that I would be more into baseball. And there are some members of my family that are into baseball. Actually, one of my little cousins um, had a baseball scholarship to college. But I always associated it with white ethnic racism, to be honest, um, particularly when you look at the history around the arena. So the, the Chicago Cubs are on the north side of Chicago, and anybody that knows Chicago um, knows that it's very segregated, and you can pretty much immediately tell race, ethnicity of someone based on where they live. And the north side is a very white area. And when you go up to that stadium, for me, actually, it's like a terrifying experience to see a lot of like drunk belligerent people. There's been some um, situations that have gone up there, like some some like racially charged racist situations. Basically, let me just say it plainly, like Black people getting their asses beat up there. So that was kind of my association with the Cubs. Plus, they were losing all the time. So I didn't really care anyway. And you would always hear these stories of Black baseball players that would come to both the Cubs and the White Sox and would just being yelled at um, the N-word and all sorts of racial epithets being yelled at them. Um, same thing, the White Sox. The White Sox arena is actually in the South Side. And it's in an area um, by Bridgeport, which was a white ethnic area where um, two of our Chicago mayors, Mayor Daly's, both came from. And that was also an area that was fraught with a lot of um, tension and hostility. Um, a lot of people may know um, the Disco Demolition Night went down at the White Sox Stadium. And for firsthand people that were there, so the Disco Demolition Night was um, the kind of quote-unquote challenge to rock and roll in the disco sucks movement where people bought a bunch of records and um, set them on fire in the middle of the field. And the kind of backstory on that from people that were there was that actually a lot of those records weren't necessarily disco records. They were Black artists. They were local Black artists. Um, people like Curtis Mayfield albums, like all sorts of that. And for the people that were actually working in the arena for Black people, they were getting yelled at racial epithets. So this was not just about disco. This wasn't just, this also had um, obviously homophobia and anti-LGBTQ elements, but really it was very anti-Black. The positive note is that one of the people that was there that was working in the arena that night, he went and picked out some of the records and he ended up being one of the pioneers of Chicago house music. But I always associated baseball with a lot of racism. And, and I want to say to you a little bit about the decline of the Black American baseball player in the MLB, because that is, I think, a topic that a lot of people talk about and they talk about it at a really shallow level. Oftentimes, the framing around why. Black American, and I'm saying American specifically because there's a lot of Afro-Latino players in the in the league, so I don't want to just say Black blanketly. But um, a lot of the conversation around it has been like, oh, hip-hop and football were so flashy and razzle-dazzle, and, you know, that that's why all the Black players started going there. But there's, there's actually a lot of 
more systemic reasons for that. So in the early part of the 20th century, baseball was the sport of Black Americans. You have the Negro Leagues, which were thriving all around the country. And because they traveled around a lot, it was like you could bring your hero came to you. So a lot of kids would see these like Black baseball players and they would be their heroes. And a, and a lot of kids played baseball. Part of what happened when the MLB integrated is that a lot of the top tier Black players in the Negro Leagues got moved into the MLB. The Negro Leagues eventually die out and you see this kind of like new era of integrated baseball. But what's also happening in the communities is that you see a lot of high rises and buildings going up in a lot of urban areas, a lot of disappearance of green space, a lot of disappearance of the type of fields that you would play baseball on in a lot of the communities where Black people were residing. So if you notice to this day, a lot of the baseball players tend to come from the South and the West. Um, West Coast, that's not an accident. It's where there still maintains a certain amount of green space. But like in cities like Chicago and Detroit and other areas, you you didn't have those green um, spaces. You had paved concrete, which is kind of where, where basketball sort of emerges from. Um, there's no funding for um, maintenance of these fields and maintenance of these um, sports in a city. And so it really becomes more of a suburban sport, which also makes it increasingly wider. And so the other thing you'll notice about Black American baseball players in the league, they mm. tend to either be the children of baseball yeah. players or come from like the suburbs. That's part of the reason why. So those are, there's like a lot of different reasons why, even though it's like a low cost to entry to baseball, it just didn't, it kind of died out as part of a Black American tradition. It's so interesting. And I do think that even in the history of the Dodgers in Los Angeles, a lot of that history of urban planning, um, urban development, it, it factors into why the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. Um, what was happening prior to the Dodgers arriving in Los Angeles was a lot of like just the way that cities were planned. And even to this day, when you look at those players that are coming from the West Coast, they're not coming from the city itself. They're like coming from like Rancho Cucamonga and like, you know, Temecula or something like way out somewhere or down by Oceanside and, and, you know, down by San Diego. So there is that kind of history of like, and I think that relates to like white flight, you know, white flight from urban centers out to suburbs with more space, the construction of freeways and, um, and all that, which, which is all related to this history. It's also the same thing with, soccer football like a lot of people ask or it's weird that football is like this global sport and everywhere except in the United States and you would think because all you need is like a ball and like you know a makeshift goal that more kids would get into it but it's it's a similar thing happening in terms of that wide green space and in terms of those type of sports getting moved out into the suburbs and becoming the like suburban soccer mom instead of being the like sport of the people it's the same thing happening yeah, I do remember as a kid, it would actually piss me off when like people would try to play soccer on the baseball like, field because like there weren't that many fields in my neighborhood to begin with. And there's only a, a couple. And the one that did exist like a couple blocks away from from me, you would always have like these people trying to play soccer there while like me and my friends were trying to just like practice, you know, hitting I don't know. It's, it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's like the barrier entry is so low and there's such a lack of availability of space that they're actually in conflict with each other. And then um, the one baseball field that was like pretty nice in my neighborhood uh, went through like some 
redevelopment as part of like an initiative that the Dodgers were were doing to try to like beautify and like, you know, upgrade all these baseball fields uh, throughout Los Angeles as a way to kind of like diversify the sport. But in place, like, and these were all city parks and in place, uh, as soon as that redevelopment happened, they completely like shut it down. Like it made it inaccessible to the public. Like my friends and I couldn't just walk up there to like, just, you know, pitch and hit and field and do all that stuff. Yeah. To like rent the field. And they were like set aside specifically for the city leagues, which like, you know, I played in, but it it, it meant that I couldn't access it in off hours. Like I had to, you know, go off and, and get into other shenanigans, like, like play basketball. But we also in the 1980s, you know, we see the rise of, a bunch of different sports. And I think like here is a time, the 1980s, I think is well remembered as like the kind of the beginnings of the golden age of basketball uh, with, where you found like marketable athletes that impacted the game and, and gave it resonance in a way that didn't exist prior to that. It's also the, the an age where like a lot of, um, you know, the commercialization um, and the broadcast of, of games is starting to happen. Uh, and, you know, so you have players like, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, the rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics really fueling the kind of the growth of the sport. But I'm curious for you, Randy, what are some things that jump out to you from the 1980s in, in relationship to sports? Yeah, I'll talk about that a little more in my argument. But my dad was a college basketball coach at the University of Illinois um, for many years as an assistant and then at the as a head coach at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And so I grew up fully immersed in college sports and you really began to see the rise of the college athlete as a superstar in a way that um, we hadn't seen before. And there's a couple of things that are going on there. One, as more interest in basketball and football is picking up. You see the NCAA uh, really respond to that and expand. The NCAA expands into about three divisions in the 70s and then, you know, let more teams into division uh, Division one. And there's a couple things that are happening with that, which is also the other reason why I think uh, you see the decline of the Black American baseball player is that they're offering scholarships and, an, and it becomes an access point for education um, for Black black people, Black men in particular, through sport into college. But the other thing that's happening there is that we are being trained to see the next superstar before they even get to the professional leagues. The NCAA is making a lot of money. They began to have the contract with corporations like Nike and Converse. I was always, we were joking the other day that uh, growing up, I was never allowed to wear any other shoe except for Converse because the University of Illinois at that time had an agreement with Converse. And so like the only shoes, (laughs) the only sports shoes that we really got in the house were Converse or like white girls, I'm sorry, kids. I think white girls is probably politically incorrect now, but (laughs) like, and then I had these gigantic like boat shoe all-stars, which make your like foot looks 10 times bigger. But anyway, because of that relationship between corporations and college sport, then you begin to see the monetization of these kids and you see these, these high profile games being aired first on NBC and then um, CBS got a major contract, I think either towards the end of the 80s or early 90s. And so you're seeing Magic Johnson, you're seeing Larry Bird, you're seeing Michael Jordan, you're seeing Akeem Olajuwon, 
Clyde Drexler on and on in college. And also in 1976, the slam dunk got made legal in college. So that enters that this ushers in this era of like five slamma jamma, which was the Houston Cougars. And, and it's really bringing a lot of excitement and eyes. But also what it's doing is as consumers, we're seeing somebody before they get to the league blow up. So I think baseball is slightly different in that I actually think it's a pro that you don't have to go to college in order to go to to get into baseball and get into the major leagues. I think the one and done and all of that is is quite, you know, bullshit. But what it does mean is that a superstar has to be made in the league in a different way. They don't necessarily come in with the same level of expectation and consumerism attached to them. And so, yeah, that was I I was like fully immersed in college sports in the 80s, really, you know, loved going to the games, loved the energy of the games. I also, before I toss it back to you, want to give a shout out to uh, what I think is the most underrated and exciting college basketball team in the history of sport, the 1989 Flying Illini from the University of Illinois. They had aggressive full court defense. Um, Scoring was abundant. They they routinely scored over 100 points per game, which anybody that watches college games knows that that's not typical even now. And my dad was the assistant coach. Yeah. And recruited a lot of those guys. He also used to say that they were the first ones to wear the baggy stuff. A lot of credit goes to the Fab Four University of Michigan, which came a year or two after them. But my dad said they were like rocking those things first. But anyway, it was a really exciting time to watch sport. Also, fun fact, Coach Bobby Knight um, taught me how to shoot free throws because he was a coach at Indiana when my dad was at University of Illinois. I think he's an asshole, so I don't I don't necessarily want to say shout out to him. But did he also teach you to throw chairs? Because I've seen you do if, do that a few he times. He did. He was like, here's <laughs> it's the wrist action. It's the wrist action. So yeah, that's that's a lot of what's really picking up steam in the eighties and and really expanding how we engage with sports and sports fandom. So Stephen. We've taken a trip down memory lane. We've heard of, you know, what brought you into baseball and sports fandom. We've learned a little bit about Fernando. We talked about sports in the 80s and the climate that's setting the stage for this argument that you're about to make in the next segment. So just to refresh our memory, what are you actually arguing? So my argument is going to be that Fernando Valenzuela was the most influential athlete of the 1980s. And just to put a, a finer point on it, I'm not talking about who was the most commercially successful athlete. I'm not talking about who was the most recognizable athlete. I'm not even talking about who was the most talented athlete of the 1980s. I am going to argue, however, that Fernando Valenzuela changed the trajectory of the sport, changed the trajectory of baseball. um, And because of that, he is the most influential athlete in the 1980s and did so more than any other athlete during that decade. You're like already like, first of all, when you're supposed to like say your sentence argument, you didn't already add in a bunch of quantifiers in there, qualifiers before we even get. OK, that's cool. You, Good can, luck disagree, to you, you can disagree with me. You can disagree with how I'm framing. Good luck argument, to you, sir. Whatever. I don't need luck. I don't need luck when I've got the receipts. OK, I've got my 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 dossier of stats. I've, I've, people have been telling me. <laughs> Brandy is a lawyer. You need to, you need to come prepped with the arguments, with the stats, with the receipts, and that's what I'm going to do in this next segment. Mm-hmm. 
And we're back. And joining us here in the virtual studio, we've got our former colleague at the Center for Media Justice, Carlos Ganeshmeter, who is one, just a longtime friend of ours, but also a brilliant communication strategist, someone that I learned a lot from in my early days entering the media justice field and learning how to how to decode media, how to deconstruct messaging and how to shape new narratives um, that carry impact. And he's been doing that work, first doing it as part of um, his role formally several years ago at the Center for Media Justice, but I know since then has gone on to work with a bunch of different kinds of movement building institutions across multiple sectors, kind of bringing that that experience, that perspective. Um, And so we're so grateful to have you on here, Carlos. I should say that part of the reason why I picked Carlos to be a judge is I wanted to lean into, I wanted to kind of veer away from my strategy the past few episodes where I've been trying to, to bring in people who I think like I can, I can convince. And for this episode, I was like, okay, I'm going to make an argument about the Dodgers. I need to, if, if, if I'm, if my instinct is to zig, I need to zag. So I brought on what would be the the unlikeliest person that could agree with me on an argument dealing with the Dodgers, which is like bring in a rival. You know, Carlos is a San Francisco Giants fan, uh, and so I was like, I'm going to bring in a Giants fan to judge this particular episode because I'm on a losing streak, and and I feel like I need to rethink the formula, rethink the methodology, and so that's why I picked Carlos, and also because Fernando Valenzuela was Mexican, and I feel like. I feel like that has to count for something here. That has to count for something with Carlos Ganeshmeter. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Is Carlos, uh, Carlos <laughs> is Mexican? Carlos, are you Mexican? New Mexican. Uh, new Mexican. New Mexican. New Mexican. <laughs> and, and Fernando Valenzuela, one of the arguments I'm going to make is that he created new Mexicans in the sport of baseball. <laughs> That's right. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Oh, thank you for that intro, Steven. Your your thinking is close, you know. I mean, we we could talk about my fandom and how it's switched over the years. But I grew up a Dodgers fan, um, interestingly, because the AAA baseball team was here in Albuquerque, the Albuquerque Dukes. The Albuquerque Dukes and the and the Isotopes at different times have had an affiliation with a minor league affiliation with the Dodgers. So I was curious about that. I was so curious, like how you could switch sides like that, but. Uh, it was a, you know, so my, we're going to, it's all heartstrings today. And I think that's the way you're going to win these arguments with, <laughs> oh gosh, you guys are so strategies. <laughs> um, at the time I was living in, in, um, I was living in San Francisco and when, what year did the, you know, I'm not good at years, but the, the Giants won the, the World Series for the first time with that kind of ragtag team. And uh, my my girlfriend at the time's nephew, Ismael, me and him just watched every game of that World Series. And, like, the party out in the streets, it kind of just made me, you know, it was pretty bandwagon-y, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in addition to being <laughs> – in addition to being a Giants fan – you also picked up fandom with the Warriors, and I have to ask you, like, how much how much legroom is there currently in the in the Warriors bandwagon? There must be a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, what legroom in the fandom? What? Oh. 
You're saying there's a lot of space, Carlos, because the fans are leaving. You know, I come from New Mexico. Yes, 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 there is. But, you know, I mean, Steph's having a great year. It's It's been rough. It's been rough. They left Oakland, too. So, you know, there's a lot of room. <laughs> a lot of room. <laughs> but what, what do you attribute, like, so so being growing up in, because you're from, um, from New Mexico, and... What was it about kind of rooting for for those two teams in particular? Um, was it just like the winning? You just happen to be in the area when they started winning? Or is there anything more that attracts you to them? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think um, <laughs> New Mexico doesn't have any like pro high, you know, the, the highest level pro sports teams. Very, very honestly, um, mostly from the West Coast folks are like, a, it's a Dodgers t- type of town. In uh, in Albuquerque, it's the Lakers, and then you know some of us fell in love with the Bulls at the, in the '90s. Um, as a family thing, uh, my grandmother would always root my on my dad's side. My grandmother was she loved sports, but she would always root for the favorite. She's like, uh, <laughs> I'm tired of losing. I'm just I just I'm gonna bet to win. <laughs> well, she also loved the Cubs, so that's the. Uh, Except for that uh, one, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but then would always root for whoever was going to win at the end. It was great. So maybe I get a little bit of that. I don't know. You get swept up in the fun, man. The parade was right in my backyard down there for the Warriors all those years. I was in the mission for the for the San, for the Giants wins, and it was a blast, man. It was just a blast. Who's your like ultimate sports team? Your ride or die sports team? Uh, yeah, the Lobos, UNM Lobos. Which, shout out Lobos, which, you know, uh, your family has a New Mexico sports connection, Brandy. Yeah, they were rivals. My my parents went to New Mexico State. They're, they have an amazing history in sports, yeah. too. The New Mexico State team, because of their connections in UTEP and right around there, it's a, it's a different place. It's a very, very, you know, I, I really love listening to the, the, the previous segments where we were talking, we all yeah. were talking about just sports in that time. and. And the things that have happened and that Southern New Mexico, it's like Eastern, it's like uh, Southeastern New Mexico, Texas, little place. There is a crazy place for sports where all those things that we all were talking about play out. So my dad, on a side note, so my dad's coach, Coach um, Lou Henson, who um, was his college coach, he started off at Hardin-Simmons, which is like this Christian um, college in Texas. um, And like a a little before the UTEP team, as part of his contract in coaching there, he he had an assistant coach that was Latino that he wanted to bring with him. And he, he wanted to be allowed to have like an integrated basketball team and and the the success that they had at Hardin Simmons is part of the reason why New Mexico State reached out to him in the in the 60s and recruited him to come on as a as a head coach so yeah they they had like a really diverse team and my dad often talks about his time in New Mexico and the diversity of like you know having teammates I think one of his teammates played for the um, national basketball team in Mexico just like all of that in the 60s and them coming together in this time of racial turmoil was really influential for him. What were your thoughts on Fernando Valenzuela growing up? I imagine you were probably familiar with him right? Yeah I don't know that's where this one of the spots Brandy lost some points I just I <laughs> couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> my father, my father was a big baseball fan. I, I, I fell in with like kind of the brandy attitude towards baseball. I had fun playing it. 
I lived in a neighborhood that was like an agricultural neighborhood and we had a lot of fields so we could play baseball. We had like makeshift fields that we built and we all played all the time. It was fun. My dad really loved baseball though. He's like one of those kind of Midwesterner white guys from from Iowa who like knew all the stats and knew everything and his two he loved the Pittsburgh Pirates and Roberto Clemente, interestingly, and uh, also like Dave Stewart and Fernando Valenzuela, right? And they kind of connected to each other through all the years playing baseball. They did no hitters on the same day. They both played for the, or he should have played for the Dukes. Dave Stewart kind of, he refused to go one year from the Dodgers to play for the Dukes. And then that's how some, some other player got kicked off the Dodgers. He's like, I'm not going down. I'm not going down to AAA. <laughs> um, so those two guys on the mound were great. I did see Fernando Venezuela pitch once um, in Albuquerque. You know, I, I I know I was there. I <laughs> vaguely remember it, and I knew he didn't. He just didn't play that that much in the game, and everybody was mad. And the stadium was fucking packed, you know. And yeah, I mean, you know, he's had an impact in in many ways that you know in the the Bull Durham piece. Uh, the, the, there's a Bull Durham scenes where mm. where um uh what's her name. Susan Sarandon. Um, yeah, where Susan Sarandon uh, is is helping the pitchers, right? And she talks to him about Fernando Valenzuela breathing through his eyeballs. And yeah, it, it's great. I watched the thirty for thirty the other day after you all asked me. Mm-hmm. Hey, it was think? so great. Um, the thing that stuck, one of the things that stuck out a, a ton was the strike that happened like eighty one, nineteen eighty one. Yeah, and how. You know, they credit Fernando with, like, saving baseball that year because everybody was tired of it, but they wanted to see if he could, you know, do it again the next year. And there was a piece during the strike where, where Johnny Carson does this joke about... I hated uh, that part. Someone, oh. hiring him, someone hiring him as a... As a... What, to do his lawn Reggie or Jackson. something? A, he, a gardener? He, like, Johnny Carson was like, Reggie Jackson, you know, just hired... Hired Fernando oh, to like do his, God, his gardening, crazy. like while the baseball strike is going <laughs> yeah, on. This is why people are trying to fuel like the black and brown divide is is fucked up. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, it was. Oh, it was smart he really tried it. You know, you gotta you want to like Johnny Carson too. He had some funny jokes at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to definitely check out that 30 for 30 if folks haven't watched yeah. it for an donation. It's pretty good. Kind of gives you like it, it has like tidbits of history, which I found really, really cool. They didn't go in depth like on what happened with with Chavez Ravine, which I can get into in my section. You know, the Me- Mexican-American neighborhood that was kind of bulldozed to make way for for Dodger Stadium. But they did touch on like the kind of growing divide in LA um, and at a moment of a, like high politicization, right? Like the, the growth of the Chicano movement, you know, the student walkouts, the Chicano moratorium uh, and a divide between that kind of political movement in the city and the Dodger fandom, at least at that time. All right. Just as a recap for our audience, um, Carlos will be judging us along a set of five criteria are receding viability creativity, energy, and rebuttal. It's on a score of one to five, but Carlos, you can feel free to get creative with the points allocation however you want. And so I'll, I'll open up by making kind of my three arguments for why I think Fernando Valenzuela was the most influential baseball player of the 1980s. Um, and then we'll open it up for Brandy to try and retort what I am going to say. 
try, emphasis on try. Um, so here, here are my three arguments. I think first off, we started kind of going into this in the earlier segment about the decline of the black baseball player, the, the African-American, black American baseball player. And we start to see that decline happen in the um, early 1980s, actually. We see kind of peak growth happening right after Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in baseball in 1947. And we see during the time period of Jackie Robinson's career, black baseball players grew from practically, you know, obviously zero to 7% of the black, you know, black baseball player representat- representation in, in baseball. Um, and by 1981 would peak at about 19%. So close to 20% of the players in baseball were black. But it's after that, that we start to see a, a pretty significant decline. It would take a couple of decades to get there. But today, that number for, you know, African American baseball players is 6%. So when Fernando came into the league, Latinx players, and it's important to kind of raise, obviously, that this this kind of demographic also does include um, Afro Latinx players, you know, like as previously mentioned, players like Roberto Clemente. But when Fernando Valenzuela entered the league, it was about eleven percent of players in the league were, you know, Latinx. And by nineteen ninety seven, when Fernando Valenzuela retired from the major leagues, that number would be up to twenty four percent. Now, I'm not going to say, and I'm not going to sit here and attribute that completely to Fernando Valenzuela, but I will say that um, you start to see a pretty significant increase starting at about the 1980s. Teams start bringing on more Latinx baseball players. And I think one of the things that Fernando Valenzuela did for baseball and did for the Dodgers in particular is that they found a player that they could market to the communities that surrounded them. And in Los Angeles, the the former Los Angeles Dodgers owner, Walter O'Malley, when he first moved the team out to LA, always had designs of trying to find a Mexican baseball player that he could market to the people of LA, particularly in light of its history with the community. By the time, by today, you know, Latinx baseball players both Afro-Latinos and, you know, non-Black Latinx baseball players account for about 27% of the overall kind of demographics of baseball players. So pretty significant kind of growth. And I think Fernando Valenzuela did a lot to diversify the game. And I think his success led to, you know, the the growth in, in these players that we've seen. And I think in particular, the other thing he did was he actually diversified a very crucial role, which is pitchers you know, which is the one of the most visible players on the field when you watch the game. And when you're at the baseball game live, like you're staring at the pitcher, you're trying to see what the pitcher is going to do next. And a lot of the action around baseball is directly tied to the pitcher, much in the same way that a quarterback is, is that kind of crucial piece to football. And, you know, in in sports critique, we often talk about kind of the the underrepresentation of of black quarterbacks in in a sport like football that's like dominated by by black players. Um, and in baseball, baseball's had very much the same problem um, for decades. You saw this underrepresentation of black pitchers, um, Latinx pitchers, um, Asian pitchers, pretty much throughout its history. But then about in 1980, you start to see a, a stark increase in the number of um, Latinx pitchers. Um, so for decades, 
the demographics around pitchers was steady the same, like Black representation, Latinx representation, Asian, were running on parallel tracks with each other. And it's in 1980 when you start to see a very sharp incline. Um, and by the end of Fernando Valenzuela's career, Latinx pitchers represented about 20% of pitchers on the mound. Stark, stark increase. So not only did he diversify the players on the field, but he did a lot to diversify a very particular position. The other thing I'll say is in the 1980s, we saw an increase in attendance. So the Dodgers prior to 1980, they would average somewhere around, you know, 30 to 35,000 fans. In the first two years that Fernando Valenzuela was in the league, that number jumped up to, on average, was about 45,000. That's their average attendance per game in 1981 and 1982, um, Fernando Valenzuela's first full seasons in the sport. And, you know, the, the stats that, and baseball is one of these sports where like so many stats are collected on it, but attendance stats for other teams during the same period in 1981, 1982, which most folks consider that kind of period of Fernando mania, uh, you see an increase when the Dodgers go on the road, you know, an increase of 10 to 15,000 additional fans in the stands that otherwise would not be there. Um, and I think, that I think to me like attributes a lot of like why the Dodgers as a team actually really travel well. Anytime you go to a game on the road, be it on the West Coast, on the East Coast, it doesn't matter where it is. And I've attended like Mets games when the Dodgers have played the Mets when I used to live in New York. And the stadium is as much as orange, you know, a predominant color for the Mets as it is like royal blue, a predominant color for for the Dodgers. So you see this on TV when you're watching like the cutaways to the crowd. The Dodgers are a team that travel well. And we start to see this kind of increase in attention to the Dodgers um, happening during the period of Fernando Mania and was very much reflected in attendance records um, for all these different teams that are all of a sudden selling out games in the 80s that wouldn't have otherwise because of Fernando Valenzuela. And then the last thing, the last argument I'll make is that Fernando Valenzuela not only diversified the field, diversified a very crucial position, brought more people to the game of baseball um, at a very crucial time, but also diversified a fan base. And this is where I think it's important to talk about the context of what was happening in Los Angeles prior to Fernando Valenzuela entering the league in 1980. So, you know, as folks might or might not know, Dodger Stadium is located in a very beautiful place, like um, on these like slopes and hills in an area previously known and still to this day, actually currently known as, as Chavez Ravine. And Chavez Ravine actually referred to a Mexican-American neighborhood that was, you know, a pretty robust and vibrant neighborhood that had schools, that had a church, that had, you know, a play area for kids, uh, but it was predominantly Mexican-American and part of the reason that that was true is, is Los Angeles, like most cities, had racist housing covenants. And so by design, there were only a few places that, you know, if you were Mexican-American, if you were Black, that you could live in the city. And, you know, at the time, um, and this is like in the early, you know, 19, 1940s, going into the 1950s, rather than address like extending housing throughout other parts of Los Angeles, progressive, quote unquote, progressive policy at the time was to do more social housing projects um, and to do more public housing projects. And there was a, a city official by the name of Frank Wilkinson, who was the head of the housing authority in Los Angeles. And he was 
he was a humanist who was kind of inspired by this idea of like leveraging government to produce projects that, you know, could deliver kind of an essential infrastructure to people. So he believed in public housing. He was actually um, responsible for the implementation of the first public housing project in Watts, which, you know, now, you know, is, is what we know as, as, as Jordan Downs, which is a predominantly black area of Watts. And I mean, Watts in general has always been a predominantly like black neighborhood and in the early 1950s, he sets his sights on this Mexican-American neighborhood called Chavez Ravine, um, where he visioned building a public housing project um, that, and would give the residents of that neighborhood um, vouchers to return, which is a term, and, and this goes into some of my like affordable housing organizing history, but it's this term, like the right of like first return. So it's this kind of mechanism by which you can displace someone from the neighborhood they're from, but give them the option to return back to the neighborhood once whatever project you're building is done. These are often mechanisms that are false promises because, you know, housing projects can take years to pull off. And anytime that you're doing any sort of like housing projects that involve government money, like a lot of things can go sideways. But Came into Chavez Ravine, Frank Wilkinson made this promise of like, we're going to build this wonderful public housing here, you know, leave, and then you can come back. And and many people did in fact do that, but a lot didn't. Um, and I think that's worth um, lifting up. There was a lot of resistance to this sort of shift um, by the residents in Chavez Ravine. At the same time, this is also the era of McCarthyism, um, named after Joseph McCarthy, who went after and investigated supposed like uh, infiltration of, of folks involved with the Communist Party. Um, and he targeted a lot of political activists, musicians, artists, um, and a lot of public city officials that were working on, you know, public housing projects like this um, were targeted as well. And Frank Wilkinson was one of them. And so this project, which seemed to be seemed like it was going to happen, got completely derailed as Frank Wilkinson became the subject of um, investigations by the House Un-American Activities Committee. So, you know, Chavez Ravine essentially ends up this kind of half vacant neighborhood now because they've, a lot of residents have been convinced to leave and the residents that stayed there like were resisting. But the city ended up with like access to deeds for a lot of property in this area and no project to, to fulfill, nothing to do with it. And around this time is when we see the owner of the Dodgers, Walter O'Malley, start to consider making a move from Brooklyn. Um, he was looking to build his own stadium. And the city of New York was essentially getting in his way because they had different visions about how to do it. And it's interesting that their disagreement was around whether to build what Walter O'Malley wanted to do, which is a privately funded um, stadium where the where the Dodgers would own the stadium and own all the concessions and everything versus doing a publicly kind of muni municipally owned stadium, which is what Robert Moses, who was an urban planner um, for the city of New York and also one of the chief architects of a lot of um, urban design during the 1950s, which prompted a lot of white flight from urban centers to suburbs. He was kind of the main chief rival to Walter O'Malley at that time. He had a very different vision for the stadium, one that would have been municipally owned, that would have where the profits would have stayed with the city. But Walter O'Malley decided to leave and he found a very willing city in Los Angeles with a big plot of land available, um, not completely available, but there for him to to do what he wanted to do. And so when they agreed to 
you know, to take over that land, the remaining residents that were there resisting um, fought back and uh, were forcibly, like quite literally forcibly removed. And there's like images of like law enforcement coming in and like literally dragging people out of their homes. So that was the context in the relationship and how the relationship started between you know, in Los Angeles, an area that was very heavily populated by Mexican-Americans um, between that community and the Dodgers. And so for decades, people didn't really go out to the games, but they did here once Fernando Valenzuela entered the league in in the 1980s. You know, for me, I think it, it explains for me how someone like my brother's dad, who was, who was from El Salvador, came to the United States in the 1980s. Um, baseball is not a sport that's popular in El Salvador by any stretch, but it explains to me how someone like him could get interested in a sport where El Salvador doesn't care about the sport, but here was this this person who became enamored with the Dodgers and enough so to try to share that experience with someone like me. So, and it's something that like for for me, like I take a lot of pride in extending that kind of fandom to the next generation down. I've taken my nieces and nephews to multiple Dodger games. Um, it's one of my like favorite things to do when I'm in LA. So the sport, and, and that's reflected in the data around um, the the fan base of 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 the Dodgers. They are among the highest, um, most diverse baseball fan bases um, in the sport. And I think the only teams that rival the Dodgers, and they're actually on equal footing, are teams like the Miami Marlins, where they're located in a neighborhood, in an area that is predominantly Cuban. And uh, you see this a little bit with the Oakland A's as well. It's a pretty diverse fan base. And, you know, the Dodgers, a third of their fan base is Latinx, according to, you know, surveys that were done by Morning Consult. So here I am providing my receipts. And overall representation of their fan base is about 50%, which, you know, I think, Randy, you were mentioning earlier um, in the previous segment about like the, you know, kind of perceiving baseball to be this kind of white man sport. And I think that data does prove out for most other teams. And I think the Dodgers are an exception here. And that just wasn't true for the fan base prior to Fernando Valenzuela, you know, so... Uh, so by comparison, you look at a team like the Chicago Cubs, which even to this day, you know, over 65% of their fans are white, you know, so diversified the sport, diversified a very crucial role, um, increased attendance and and brought people to the sport in a way that we hadn't seen prior to that and diversified a fan base in a city that had a very fractured relationship with the team. Um, and for those reasons, I am saying that Fernando Valenzuela was the most influential athlete of the 1980s. And again, I'm talking about a person, an individual who changed the trajectory of the sport. And I think Fernando Valenzuela did that more so than any other athlete. And I will leave it there. Thanks, Stephen. I'm going to make three arguments about why I disagree with you. And the first place I'll start is by deconstructing what is cultural power and influence? Like, what does that actually mean? What are we talking about here? And so to me, I think of three kind of overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram of spheres of influence where cultural power kind of lies in the middle. So one, saturation and distribution platforms. So like 
how much of the content is going out to the masses, is accessible, is being seen, is really spread across whatever is the modern communications technology at the time. So today we would say the internet, uh, maybe in the 80s, we would say television, magazines, et cetera. That's one circle, the distribution platforms. Second circle is those kind of like closed spaces where cultural conversation happens. So um, in the Black community, that might be like the barbershop or the or the beauty salon. Um, maybe it's a kitchen table, but like, w- like somebody's making it from these like distribution platforms into everyday conversation that's happening with folks. And then the third circle is who is the storyteller, who is like the the, the compelling figure that is really helping to drive and shape cultural power and influence. So if I look at those three circles overlapping each other, I would say that that's like in the center of that is where influence lies. If that's the argument that I would make, and I am, I would say that part of where I think your argument falls apart is that In the 80s, we are really entering into a time of like high consumerism, high saturation. What builds cultural power tends to revolve around youth and pop culture. And in the 80s, it's revolving around consumer culture. And when you really look at the subcultures that are kind of driving influence in the public conversation, it tends to be subcultures like hip hop, for example. And that's really shaping how we're engaging with with culture and with cultural power and with influence. And I would say in that landscape, a lot of that is introducing a lot of potential figures that we could sit here and we could argue are highly influential, but makes it really hard to actually pin down who that like one major influencer of the 80s could be because we're being confronted with a lot of different speedy elements. So I could sit here, obviously, I my instinct would be to make the argument about Michael Jordan. And I, I do think there's a compelling argument there. But people could make that argument about Magic Johnson. People could make that argument about um, Larry Bird. They could make it about Bo Jackson. They could make it about, I can't remember if Deion Sanders is is like 80s or 90s, but there's a number of different like sports icons that are coming to the center that are really shaping and influencing culture and how we understand culture and influence and power. So I would say that that because of that, it makes it really hard to just pin it down to like one person or to just pin it down exclusively to um, Fernando because we are like moving really fast as consumers and and, and bringing in a lot of inputs, especially in the 80s as computers are taking off and um, all of these other communications vehicles. So if I, if I were to like you know, sift through the rubble, whether or not I, I feel like he he really sits at that spot of like compelling storyteller, saturation, distribution platform being discussed in certain barbershop or, you know, community spaces. Certainly he could he could fit in there, but so could a number of other figures. And that, and that's part of the reason why I have trouble with the the idea that he would be the most influential um, person of the 1980s. So that would be argument one. Argument two, I think that like a lot of what you're talking about feels very regional or local in terms of influence. So if we were talking about is Fernando the most influential 
sports figure in California or LA in the 80s. That would be a conversation that I think has teeth in it. If you were making the argument that LA broadly as a sports epicenter is the most influential, you know, sports base of the 80s, I would have a lot of questions inside eye and I would disagree with you, but I would find a little more merit in that because to your point, you do at this point have the LA Raiders. You have, and and you have, again, g- going back to this piece around like hip hop as this subculture that's wielding great influence in the 80s, the the LA Raiders and the the iconography and the, the aesthetic that's being like shared out through it, groups like NWA and others is really moving that into the pop culture sphere. It's part of the reason why even though the Raiders weren't in LA for very long relative to how they were in Oakland, people still remember the LA Raiders. And then you have the Lakers, you have Showtime, you have Magic Johnson, you have like, you know, all of these high flyers. And so even in that field of like LA, I could I could see the argument about Fernando, but like broadly, I would say that 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 the point may be that LA as a sports city may have been the most influential sports city in the 80s. I could I could potentially get there with you. I'm lying. I could never get there with you, but like I could entertain that a little more. But I think that like to say specifically Fernando, I, I, I have a little trouble with that. I, I see that I see everything you said about the influence for the city and the impact for the city and the impact for people and impact for specific communities. Um, but broadly across um, the U.S. and culture, I'm not. I'm not sure I get there. And then the and then the third argument that I'm gonna make, which may lead to a divorce, but I'm gonna make it anyway. I feel like the very idea that in the late 20th century that baseball could be a focal point for influence is a bit laughable to me. Like I just I think at the, by this point in time the sport is dying out. I mean, yes, he increased, you know, um attendance at a number of different arenas, but it was still very much it went from being like America's pastime, America's sport, like as American as baseball and apple pie to like falling down the ranks in terms of what people were looking at, what people were consuming. And there's reasons why. Like baseball is cheap to go to, you could bring your food it's like fun to watch in person, but in terms of like how that translates to a, a beginnings of an internet culture, the beginning of like 24 hour television and all of these things are happening. It just doesn't translate well. Like I, when we were in Oakland, I used to go watch the A's a lot. And that was fun. Now we're back in Baltimore and, and David goes to watch the Orioles by himself. Almost entirely by himself. Almost entirely <laughs> by himself. Yeah, Almost that because there's, was pretty like, empty. there's like 10 people there. Um, but like, it, it's just, it's not a sport that necessarily translates well outside of the arena in some ways. And to the extent it does, it translates well to radio, which again adds to why it feels a little bit more dated than other sports. Like it's the only ha- sport... That builds in, they know that you're sitting there. So in the seventh inning, you have to get up and stretch. Like what other sport do you have to like get up and stretch in the middle of the sport? Even when Carlos and I went there to see the Oakland A's, to see Suspedes, like we went there and like sat outside and had to go walk around. I had a farmer's tan for a month and I'm like, I'm, I'm black 
on both sides of my family, DNA fully melanated. It is outrageous that I had to sit outside for three, four hours and then have a farmer's tan for a month. And that that's the type of reasons. That's one of the many reasons why I think as uh, picking somebody, anybody from baseball as a most iconic influential figure in the last like 20 years of the 20th century and the 21st century, I think doesn't work. Wow. Yeah. Very disrespectful. It's, it's a word that comes to mind. Look, so I'm just, I'm going to rebut a couple things you said, because I think that your, your definition of cultural power is so in, intrinsically tied to consumerism that I have to divorce the two. To me, I think there's something you said in the last episode, the Marvin Gaye episode, about the importance of having something that makes you feel like you belong, you know, and Marvin Gaye's rendition of the national anthem, making you feel connected to a country that in, in every other iteration of that song, like made you made you feel disconnected completely and that you saw yourself reflected in it. And I think that is, to me, the kind of influence that I'm talking about here with Fernando Valenzuela in the sport of baseball. He made immigrants feel like they had a place in the sport. He made Latinx people across the various different ethnicities feel like they had a place and they belonged at the stadiums. And you know, and when I look at the demographic data for some of the various different teams, like the Marlins, the Athletics, the Giants, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays, the New York Mets, the Houston Astros, the San Diego Padres. I see teams where part of the reason that their fan base is as diverse that, you know, supersedes the league average is because those immigrant communities um, have embraced the sport, have embraced the team and go to those games and feel like they actually belong. And I, and I think that that counts for a lot for me. And that's why I like, you know, when I go to Dodger Stadium, I do feel at home. Like I, I feel like I'm among my people and it just like everybody looks like either a cousin of mine, an uncle, you know, my niece, like they, it just looks like where you're from. And in a sport that as, as you've noted, like has, it comes tinged with so much like racialized, like history where, and it's a sport that's been largely populated by white people to feel that in this kind of a sport you know, in this kind of a sport that resisted integration, that that still to this day, like does become flashpoints of like political conversation, you know, and still has like pretty significant like racist, racist fan bases all over the sport, that that is a site where we can claim space and claim to feel a part of it. That is significant. And I, and I don't think that that would be true without the presence of Fernando Valenzuela. And then the only other thing I'll say is that the sport of baseball being kind of a, a cultural piece, being laughable, I guess what I would say is, yes, the sport is, is often still accessible to people via radio. And, and I think one of the unique things about that, which I think speaks to my core argument, is that to this day, you know, Latinx people still listen to radio in significant numbers. And that is like, my mom listens to radio. That's all she did when she worked was just listen to radio. There's a culture around listening to uh, this sport, particularly in a narrative way that I think still carries forward to this day. And we have just 
so happens that the voice of the Dodgers today, the Spanish language voice of the Dodgers today is Fernando Valenzuela. Um, and it used to be Jaime Harin, who was the voice of the Dodgers for decades since like the 1950s when they or 1960s when they started broadcasting Dodger games in Spanish. It's, it's still a way that this sport becomes accessible to a community that wouldn't otherwise have access to professional sports. And I'll tell you to this day, I have not been to a Laker game, an actual Laker game, like in person in Los Angeles. I've been, I've been to see the Lakers on the road when I used to live in Minnesota because it was somewhat more affordable. I can't afford to go to a Laker game in LA, but I can definitely afford to go myself to a Dodger game and bring my cousins, my nieces, my nephews. That is affordable to me. That is accessible to me. And, and I think that that kind of connection, that kind of ability to access professional sports, I think is is something that we can't undervalue here. And I think is it's speaking to my core argument of influence. I think it it influenced people to come to a sport, to engage with it, and to feel like they belong. And Fernando Valenzuela did that. I think what I appreciate about what you're saying is that I do think that that baseball fandom does have a certain amount of feeling of belonging to it. Like baseball fans are really into being baseball fans and are really into their team and, and have like a, a love for it and for the sort of sacred traditions of the sport that I think are very valuable but again, speak to its sort of datedness because it is a very traditional sport. Um, everything about it, like even the Yankees have to, I feel like they have to still wear their hair a certain way and wear their jersey a certain way. Maybe they changed that more recently, but for many years, there's something about it that doesn't always feel welcoming to people that are trying to like move forward in the course of 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 history and i i do think i do definitely take your point about it being accessible on radio um and i think that's very important but what good is it to be accessible on radio if it's not accessible in your backyard because you don't have a backyard because you know a lot of infrastructure failures have made it not possible for you to have a backyard to go play baseball. So even if you hear, you know, someone on the radio and you get really excited about it, you go out on your street, you can't really take a swing at the ball because you're going to knock out a window. And and once you knock out a window, you know, the city's not going to come prepare it, you know, come repair it anyway. Or, you know, all of those things, again, that make it feel like a bit of a time capsule as a sport and then the figures within it. It it almost feels like a secret society to me, baseball fans, which I think is kind of the opposite of what broader cultural influence is. It's supposed to feel like it's for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you live. It's it's supposed to feel like something for, for youth culture and subcultures. And to me, it just it, it has not for a long time. I would I would say it it did in the early part of the 20th century, but that that is very much a, a, a time gone by, and that's part of the reason why it's like still bleeding fans to this day. Yeah, that's those are fair points. I mean, I, I hear that, and I also think that there is a way that Fernando Valenzuela was, I think, unique in the sense that he came from a ridiculously like small, small, small town in outside in Sonora, Mexico. And when he came into the league, he was, I think fandom, fandom kind of emerged around him. He didn't actively seek it. Um, but there were unique things about him. Like he just, he looked like my uncle, 
you know, he still looks like my uncle to this day. Um, he just looks like someone that wasn't like shaped to be, isn't supposed to be as good or as effective um, as he as he as he was, you know, especially during a time in the 1980s where there was so much like anti-immigrant fervor, like um, scurried up by like Reagan um, as a response to like some some of the economic downturn and high unemployment rates, like the scapegoats were immigrants. And I think to see an immigrant that looked like you hurl a baseball at another white person and strike them out, like that's a powerful, powerful image. Um, and highly influential. And I think while he wasn't the most bombastic, the most like outspoken, you know, the most flamboyant baseball player, I do think he created the pathways for those kinds of play baseball players that have come later and that are now kind of currently pushing the sport to be a, a different way, you know? And I think you see that with the introduction of foreign born baseball players coming into the league who bring a different kind of swagger. Your, your Fernando Tatis Juniors, you know, your, your Shohei Otanis, you know, your Yasiel Puig's like players who came in like with energy and are bucking the trends, the, con the convention in baseball. And I think it's pushing it in a different direction, but I take your points. They're, they're, they're not bad. You know, they're, they're cool. I also just want to name that, like how, how we did this show is it's supposed to be, you make an argument, I make an argument, you make a rebuttal, I make a rebuttal, and then we stop. <laughs> and you just, I don't know, Carlos, if you're wow. subtracting points for that, but I did want to put that out. Well, speaking of which, why don't we turn it over to you, Carlos? You can feel free to do, you can feel free to do whatever you want, Carlos. I'm not, I'm not going to counter. I was actually trying to agree and say like, you made some good points, Brandy. I was just trying to accentuate a previous point that I had made, um, but fair <laughs> enough. Turning it over to you, Carlos, you've heard us debate now for a little bit. What do you think? Oh, oh man, I love you guys. Um, a lot of heart, a lot of heart in this story, a lot of heart in this debate, um, and a lot of distance in time, you know? So sometimes, like, I think you guys both have tough jobs debating each other. You have a professional receipts bringer with Brandy and definitely like constant. And I know this because I've argued with her. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if I've That's ever right. won one or if I would say I ever lost one either but you've you won know, a lot you've won uh, a lot Carlos and we have um Steven I mean so I think this is a tough one right this is a really tough thing and, and the framing of it makes makes you have to think about some pieces right let me try to think what I heard so so his distance in time when his influence was really peaking is early 80s, right? Um, which is longer time frame in this world that goes really fast, as Brandy's been talking about. And we kind of just yep. churn things up and out. And, and what we, what can be influential at one point may feel not influential at another without its context, right? So, like, this idea, like, did he have cultural impact uh, and impact? You know, I don't know. So, like, is it the, is, what was the real, he is the most influential athlete of the 80s? Mm -hmm. It's a tough argument to make. I mean, mm -hmm. with, did you bring up Jordan? You did bring up Jordan. It, was he in the 80s? For real? I mean, he was, but like. His peak was in the 90s, though. His peak was 90s. Right, but like Jordan won's drop in like 85. Really? Yeah. That's important on cultural and influence. 
Um, Fernando Valenzuela would have had a shoe deal if he had wanted it. He just he just didn't want it. No, no. I mean, so there's some things in here that like the mania is so real on what his story created. He's like from he's like from a like a and it, it, it this is where he really resonates with me, right? And, and with with all of us is that he's from like Etchotquahuila, <laughs> Mexico, you know, which is like a tiny thing in an in Sonora Sonora municipality for him to sell the most posters then. And I mean, more posters than like Superman. Like they, he did them like his impact in that 81 to 85 is huge. So I like, I got a lot of love for that. And I don't know if it's, and, and, and I would like to hear like, is it fair to say just because baseball is, has like lost its place here that he wasn't then influential to other sporting folks in the 80s. Similarly, I think a lot about like Selena. Mm-hmm. I've been watching Selena documentary. You guys been seeing it? I did. Yeah. Uh, the the series or the documentary? Oh, no. I just saw the series. Yeah. Yeah. We, we would not have a Beyonce without Selena. You should have made that argument. Oh, yeah. So Selena, the new series, right? It's, on. it's been on, right? And like, oh, so in similar ways to I think the way Selena was like influential beyond her little time. And even though Tejano music might not be quite as uh, bumping as like what, I mean, it might not be as commercially successful as whatever her, her reach around and the way she impacted other, mostly people of color artists to like take control of their own narrative and stuff um, was cool. I don't think Fernando Valenzuela quite meets that. Um, but this was about the arguments and the passion and the creativity and the receipts. I had Brandy winning in receipts. I had Steven up in creativity, but Brandy pretty close in that because, um, um, you know, really working to my cultural uh, power, it was very smart and creative and also just a creative arguments. Um, viability had Brandy ahead, energy with Steven. Uh, rebuttals were pretty on the mark. So I had Steven just winning by energy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Damn you, Carlos. I'm not going to disinvite people because the list of people willing to make time for this may not be that big yet. So I have to keep the racism. <laughs> I can't cut everybody out. I can't cancel everybody. So it's, it is what it is, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think Carlos made the right choice. I think he's 100% right. I mean, the Valenzuela was like influential in a way that I think is, is really hard for us to really measure now because of everything that we have to compare it to. But when you like, I think Selena was a great comparison. Mm. I think that like a hundred percent right is I don't know, but I will say that I do think you know the stuff around community and belonging, and then the like long term implications for the role of the pitcher and visibility and um, the times. You know, it's it's fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think it's all about the way you frame it at the start of those things. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to, like, next time when I'm 
setting up my question. I'm going to use like a paragraph <laughs> of like caveats before we even get to the argument section, just to like help with the framing. But Carlos, that's a, I mean, you, you are the framing guy. You're like the first person that I think I really had an in-depth conversation with about the importance of framing. And you might be the first judge that made your decision like strictly based off of that. So tell us more about like what, why, why do you think framing is so important? And, wh- and what do you think about as you're doing your communications work about this piece around framing? Framing. <laughs> Went right into it. Um, I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to like, whatever, wrap this, wrap this shit up. Cause I, you know, I'm not happy. So. <laughs> yeah. You're still the greatest Brandy. Um, <laughs> you still brought receipts, but, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to vote against Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, so framing, uh, communications and stuff, I kind of get like put in that spot from my work over a long time. I don't know. I think it's changing rapidly. I mean, not not necessarily the fundamentals of the ways in which we as consumers of media and other things kind of take it in. But it's definitely like the world's moving very fast now. I think I spoke to that a little bit earlier in the in the show. Institutions are being shaped and reshaped and transformed, you know, by the minute. Big ones, big institutions, big systems are being looked at differently now, you know, and they're being reshaped. It's not like the institutions are doing it. It's because there's like networks, both like organized and not, that are really making a big impact like on an institution itself and changing it very rapidly. So within that context, this has me thinking of things that are just a little like, like, like fundamental things around the ways in which we view our world. So things like common sense, what is common sense right now, right? With all these fighting networks, with people like the partisanship, uh, what is public opinion? So I've been thinking a lot about uh, the ways that cultural power and uh, political power and economic power are needed for communities to transform themselves, right? You know, there's that, like, making the, the revolution irresistible quote. And I think people kind of think that means, like, pretty it up, make it look good. Um, but to me, what's irresistible right now for people and how the ways in which they want to get involved has to do much more with engagement. So like engaging people with your art, not showing like, you know, not just kind of putting it out there. To me, it's super exciting. And I've been working like the last four or five years on a project called Arriba, New Mexico, up with New Mexico, where we gather designers and artists and organizers to create like um, either immersive spaces, installments, mobile tools that go out and actually engage people on what they want because of that thing about common sense that I keep seeing right now is that like even the best of us have a manufactured consent around all this stuff that's going on right but I I get what you're saying there like it's such a weird moment to be doing this cultural work because it's it's what's understood like who you're trying Mm -hmm. to influence is very different today it's a much more fragmented like space and the technology communications channels like make it so that you can shape public discourse in an accelerated way more so than you used to be able to, right? Like you would track changes in in kind of public communications and public messaging over the course of like years to see 
if your work could really influence like the conversation and nowadays it feels like you're like one viral TikTok video away from like completely shifting the center of conversation. I mean, totally. And I think that that kind of reality still exists besides these realities where we're, our conditions are still similar. That tension right there where we're trying to, um, like you could put out dope stuff and it'll piss off equally as many people, it feels like, right? So, and then, you know, the when the, when the conditions are the same and the foot is still on the throats of our communities, whether it's the cops, all the different things that are, are messing with us, we really have less opportunity to imagine and actually think of the world working differently and better. So I think a lot of our cultural work has to be about listening to what's out going on out there, about creating spaces that can kind of strip down some of that both hyper-partisanship, but just that our cultural identities and our political spectrums are so far apart um, to break down some of that so that we can try to think about what we would really want. So like even here in New Mexico recently, I've been, I've been chilling in New Mexico a lot there just to legalize cannabis. It's easy to take that as a win, right? But this is like a billion dollar industry. If you don't believe that you deserve like good things, it's hard to even think of policies that would allow you to get it, no? So this thing about like um, deserving, like how do we, how, what, how do we create conditions that allow people to think they deserve good so that they can fight for it? Because the other side is going to say we don't deserve any good, right? So if we also say that, it's a, tr- it's a tough space to be in. So I think a lot of our cultural space right now is about imagination. It's about being able to think up new agreements to, for how we deal with each other. Um, and I've been doing that with El Riba, New Mexico. Like I said, I've been trying to do some other stuff around community stewardship, like thinking of the ways in which that philanthropy is, is transforming as an institution and figure out how we can set up our communities to be able, because one of the things is like, you don't deserve money in your communities, right? And it's really easy for everybody to give tons of money to other communities. Um, but if we don't deserve, if we don't think we deserve it and we can't imagine a new agreement around our life. I really think the like the policy disagreements that we have right now really aren't going to make that much difference. It's really about us kind of getting involved in our own liberation and the cultural strategies that exist aren't about giving away our platforms to like famous people and and even like policymakers themselves, but like really creating platforms that that allow people to talk like this one. I think that's interesting. I know we have to wrap up, but I've actually been writing quite a bit about these things. And to me, it's part of why I think antitrust and cultural work go together in a way that they're not normally thought of. Because what I what I actually think is that we've always had these different ideologies or divergent ideologies. Like there's something 21st century around certain like sort of narratives and and tropes and beliefs. But it's like we had physical spaces offline, like churches, like businesses, like, like our own newspapers, where those ideologies were worked out in service of empowerment for like our individual communities. And now as those things Um, As we lose those places and spaces offline and are forced to kind of like try to organize on an internet grid that is not conducive to cross ideological organizing and and doesn't and is not conducive to like black organizing or Latino organizing because it's just pushing like people within those nations into like conservative leftist, whatever. I think that's a part of why 
differences that maybe we've held in the past feel more insurmountable than they once did. And bringing it full circle to like the topic of the show, it actually makes me, what you just said, Brandy, makes me think about what you said about the Negro Leagues and how they, as baseball integrated, that institution, which had long held like a very significant cultural place in Black communities across, you know, across different regions of the U.S., once that institution died as a result, you know, um, and and that was lost. And then decades later, we have major problem with like representation of Black baseball players in, you know, in the league. It's almost like once you do kind of in, indoctrinate yourself into those institutions, you get cannibalized yeah. within them. Segregation now. Segregation forever. <laughs> <laughs> and on our next podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't wait for us to get to like 1950s. Oh, I could definitely. Oh, man. Yeah. Yo, I could argue this. <laughs> <laughs> I could argue this. How can uh, folks uh, stay in touch with you, stay connected to your work? A couple of places. Aribanm.com is one place to, to get, stay in contact with us. We're on Instagram and Facebook. You can see some of like our art installations and our uh, some of the immersive environments we created and just fun kind of happy engagement, right? Um, person to person, but with a computer so that we can record it, that we can put it on the internet. So we're trying to bridge some of that offline, online spaces. Check it out. It's fun. You can always, um, I'm also do. Also worth it to get in touch with me if you're in youth organizing or your organizing work is um, about building power. I've been kind of put in a situation to be a steward of some community resources. And you can find me at Southwest Community Resources, Inc. And um, that's just like, yeah, I'm just trying to like get money to communities so that they can do what they need to do with it and build their own stuff. It's been my my mission for the last while. That's dope. We really appreciate having you on and it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun episode. Yeah. So thank you so much, Carlos. Thank, thank you. Thank you guys. I, I miss you so much. Can't wait to see you in person and hang out and all of those great things. Yeah, every time you call in you sound like you're calling from a mini Rippleton song with like birds in the background. <laughs> so I'm um, excited (laughs) that wraps it up for this episode of bring receipts thank you to our special guest carlos gauna schmieder if you love the podcast and want more then consider becoming a patreon supporter where you will get exclusive content shout outs and bring receipts merch your support will help us keep the show going a link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. And tune in next time for part one of the season finale of Bring Receipts, where Stephen and I put our musical taste on the line and face off in the ultimate 1980s mixtape battle. So rewind those cassettes and don't forget to bring receipts. Yeah.